after second service, so we got to get this rolling here. You like my haircut, by the way? I don't know how to take that. So, uh, All right, John chapter 10 is where we're going to be uh, today. We, we were in John chapter 10 last week. The first 10 verses uh, will be there again, verses 11 through 15 today. Uh, it's all the same teaching. It's all part of one teaching, but we're going to do the second half of it uh, today. And uh, I'm excited about it. Let me just set this up if you're new with us. Um, we're in this series called Present Tense. It'll take us all the way to Easter. And it's based on these seven statements that Jesus made that his friend and disciple recorded. His name is John. He recorded them in his gospel account. And all seven of these statements begin with the same two words. And they are the, word, uh, the same two words. They are the words, I am. And um, that was hard for me to get out. I am. And what follows those two words in all seven statements are these metaphors that Jesus gives, these word pictures, these grammatical framings that invite us in to see who Jesus is uh, in a really visual way. And uh, all of these statements, all seven of these I am's, and I don't know if he said more than that uh, or what, but John at least records seven of them. And uh, they're all autobiographical. And so Jesus is talking to us about himself. He's essentially teaching us who he is, like Jesus speaking on Jesus. And so that to me is incredible. And the thing that connects all seven of these statements, and you'll, you'll pick this up as you move through the series with us, is that all of them share the same subject matter, which is essentially what does life look like when we reconnect with God? When we come back to God, what does life look like when we lean on him, we trust him, when we give everything that really belongs to him back to him, which is us, what does life look like at that point for us? All seven of these I am's are about life, about some kind of uh, uh, portion of what it looks like to live this life that God uh, has for us. So today we're going to move through really, I think, probably one of the most famous I am statements uh, there is and it's, uh, it's really exciting to sort of move through this today. But I want to set this up for you and ask you to do two things. Uh, I, w- I would like for you to discover some answers to two questions as we, as we uh, learn through this today. So if you brought something to write on, if you've got a bulletin, the backside's blank for you. If you have a journal, if you're an Evernote person, I don't care. Write something down today. Listen actively. Because here's what's going on. Here's the questions you want to answer today. The first one is just kind of a basic, this is a question you always ask when you're studying Scripture, is what does uh, this teaching, what is what Jesus is saying today, what does it do to shape my understanding of who God is? So when you're, when you're listening today, when you're following along in your Bible, if you have that, what is it that you're learning about God and how is Jesus reshaping uh, your understanding of who he is? That's the first question you want to listen uh, for the second thing is, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, how do I respond uh, to what I learned today? In other words, what are the implications for what I'm about to hear for my everyday life? Like, are there any and what are they? And in a broader sense, I want to put this out there. I don't know if I'll have time to get to it. But in a broader sense, what does this mean uh, for our church here in this city? So I'll try to get to that. I'm not going to promise that. But at least those first two, uh, what am I learning about God through what Jesus is about to say here in this text? And then 
what is my response to this? What am I supposed to do with this stuff? All right, does that make sense? Are you ready? All right, I'll take that as a yes. They whistled first hour. Can we try that? You guys ready? Yeah, all right. Wow. (laughs) I'm here all week. All right. Everybody in John 10, are you ready? All right, Jesus begins by saying these words. uh, I am the good shepherd. Let's say that together. I am the good shepherd. The word for shepherd is the word poimen. And it's one of... Uh, it's one of the words that, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, that is used to describe not just actual shepherds, but people who care for others. And in the days of Jesus, and you may or may not know this, but in the days of Jesus, the shepherd, the actual shepherd was like the lowest of the low on the career chain. They were dirty. They worked all night. Their reputation was slightly above that of a pirate. No one really wanted them around even though they were very much needed in the marketplace because shepherding was a way of life, it was an economic reality in those days, even though they were needed, shepherds were, were not the first people that would come to your mind when you're thinking about traits like dignity or good character. And so I like that Jesus modified the vocation. I'm not just a shepherd. Let's just get this clear. I'm a good one, right? I don't think that's skill-based. I think this is about his character. of all, And and I like that it's singular, too. Like, Jesus is like, okay, we're talking about shepherds here, but I'm I'm a good one. I'm the good one, the only good one. And so he's using a cultural reality that all of these people would have understood. I'm the good shepherd, and not just a shepherd, but as, as as you know, he is a good shepherd. Not just a bad one, but a good one. And so it kind of begs, like, what is a good shepherd? Well, he fleshes this out for us in the next part of the verse. Look what he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that's a pretty good description, is it not? Like there's shepherds, and then there's really good shepherds. And the good one, you're, you're defined good by the fact that you're willing to lay down your life for your sheep, Right? So this is picture this ultimate concern that the shepherd has uh, for the sheep. Now part of this, for those who were listening to the story then, part of this looks back to uh, Israel's greatest king, David, who himself, when he was a teenager, was also a shepherd. And as the stories unfold in the Old Testament, we read about David risking his life to save the sheep from prey, fighting off Uh, pray with his own hands. And so a good shepherd is one who actually cares for the sheep enough that he's willing to put himself in harm's way. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, and they all sort of tilt their head like, really, what is that? And he says, a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. They start to put the two together. And the picture that Jesus is giving us here is that A good shepherd cares so deeply for his sheep that he's willing to take the ultimate loss for them. There's an incredible level of commitment to the sheep. Does that make sense? So it's a very simple opening part to his teaching. Let's talk about theology for a moment. God is a shepherd over his people. There may not be 
a more often used metaphor in the scriptures for God than the one that he is a shepherd over his people. <clears throat> that he watches over his sheep. That we are his sheep and this world is his pasture. And that he is the shepherd. And that he is a good one. And that he will pay the ultimate price for his people. Which can be very hard for, for many people. It can be hard for us because God, <clears throat> we typically look at God and see God. We retrofit him into the form of all of the authority figures in our lives that have failed us. God is always uh, reckoned to the least common denominator for us in terms of authority figures in our lives. We never see him, at least it's a struggle to see God as far better than the greatest authority of figure in our life. We always fit him into the worst ones, the ones that have failed us. Parents, our families, teachers, even pastors. And we take those experiences and they shape our spiritual understanding of God. You probably pray to God in the very same way that you relate to all the failing authority figures in your life. Just to use families for an example, if your family is overbearing, and if your parents were always on your case about doing the right thing, and if you did the wrong thing, it was a terrible situation in your house, your prayers, or at least your relationship with God is, is struggles at best. You always assume that when you fail, it's just not the time to pray. When you're in, when you're in a failing season in your life, because that's just kind of how you grew up, you just stay, you stay away. God wants you to clean yourself up before you come back in and hang out with him. If your parents gave you everything you wanted in life, and that's just kind of who you are, you expect that from God. And you stop praying when you don't get what you want. And you stop going to him when it doesn't seem fair. God isn't fair because I didn't get that job. Or I didn't get that girl. Or I didn't get that raise. God is unfair. I prayed about that. We, we brought up in our small group. We prayed for that. You might be able to follow the breadcrumbs back to a life where you grew up just sort of receiving whatever it is you wanted. Or if you had to work hard for anything, that God is a, a strong reality for you, but it's, it's a works-based thing where you're just sort of always climbing the hill and God's there if you need him, but you'll do the work. You'll somehow find the strength within you to forgive yourself before you allow God to forgive you. So whatever they are, families, pastors, teachers, <clears throat> we kind of fit God into that mold. And that's how we relate to him. And God can also be made guilty by association, like the pain of a past church experience, which is very real and dangerous, that that can form within us uh, a picture of God that isn't always accurate. I don't know if you follow the... Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the church that's always picketing the funerals, and it's just like, oh my gosh. Well, now some of the family members of the founders of those, of that movement, they're, they, they're exiting, and they're running away. And uh, I've been reading some of the interviews. They track them down. They track down the daughter of one of the lead guys there who left that church and ended up in the back of an Anglican church in Brooklyn. 
and they found her, and they're interviewing her. And she essentially is saying that her spiritual life, everything is on rehab. She's slowly easing back into this thing because everything that she was taught about God was wrong. And everything that she had based her faith on, essentially saying, my only understanding of God was that he hated everybody. That's all I knew. And so I'm on the mend. And it's just incredible to read those stories and follow that whole scenario. And so I think that when Jesus said these words, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, I I don't think those struggles that we just talked about were very far from the mind of Jesus when he laid out those, those words. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. He adds another character to the parable here. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand doesn't care for the sheep, right? So he enters in this new person. You got the sheep, the shepherd. Here comes the wolf, and there's the hired hand, who is not the shepherd. He makes that clear. And when the hired hand sees that it's getting pretty dangerous and the sheep now become a liability on his own life, he runs because he doesn't own the sheep. And then Jesus puts the big one in here. He doesn't even care about the sheep. He doesn't really care about that. He cares about himself. All right, does that make sense? Let's pause. It's been pretty heavy. Uh, Funny story. Um, When I was in college... I got handed my senior year, I got handed a master key to every lock on campus. There was this tradition for like 15 years that this key got passed down to a senior. And uh, it literally opened every door in every building on campus. Uh, I don't even remember who gave it to me, which is what we were supposed to say if we got caught, right? Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was that serious, right? And I was sort of a prankster anyway. Like, if you lived on my hall, you were always suspect. And um, one time I did something to these freshmen. Uh, and I don't, remember, I don't remember what it was. But they all, like, conspired to get me back. But somebody knew that I had the master key. And they were like, let's go get Sweatman, you know. And he's like, I don't think I would do that because he's got a key to your room. Uh, but anyway, it, we were about three months from graduation. And... Um, we were all sitting around the dorm one night, and we, we wanted to do something. You know, I got to do something. I got to go down with something, you know. Um, and it was, the next day was chapel. And here's how chapel worked at our school. We used, at that time, the gym, and it had a stage. And uh, so you had to set up chairs. And the way they did this was, I mean, it was like 800-plus chairs you had to set up. And they were all heavy metal chairs, and you had to connect them together and just right. And uh, it took a couple of hours. And what they did was they... Your floor, depending on your floor, you had a certain week of the month where you went and set up chapel chairs. you have to do this, Joe, when you went to Cincinnati? It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, and then they built that nice chapel that has, yeah, lightweights, yeah. Uh, so our floor wasn't up, but this floor above us was up, and we just always played jokes on this floor. And they were like, what do you want to do? And I'm telling you, it, takes, it took a long time to set the chairs up. Uh, I said, I know what we do. Let's go. Let's go up to the chapel and let's turn all the chairs around backwards. I know you're like, really? Is it seminary pranks? Is it? Uh, 
<laughs> we were lighting people on fire. Uh, <laughs> so uh, whatever. But no, so we would, set, we would turn around, but they would be in the same place. So it, they would look normal. And we left the back row normal. So when you walked in, everything looked fine. But when you went to your seat, you had to turn it around. And we thought that would just be really funny, you know. And uh, I mean, it was time to graduate for me, right? And so we, it's like after midnight because you got to wait. And we walk up to the main building. We use my key. We get in. There's about 10 or 12 of us. And we go in and we do, the, we do the gig. Like we turn them all around and we're just laughing because, again, this is seminary humor. And, uh, man, they're going to remember us forever. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we turned all the chairs around and we had a good laugh. And we're walking back through the building to go out the side. And we see the security guard, but we're not sure if he sees us. So we kind of freak out and we run. And we all run the same direction, and we end up in this storage room that has an exit to the outside, and so we're all crammed in there, and we're just kind of waiting for things to chill down, right? We're just like, you know, like, this could be, the, and I'm thinking, this is all I'm thinking, I'm supposed to graduate in two months, like, this can't be it, this cannot be the end. And so uh, we get there, well, there's the exit door, and our friend is standing at the door, and he opens the door to look outside, and, he's, and then he closes it, and he says, okay, just hang on a minute, there's a car. I'm like, okay. And then he opens the door again and he looks out and he goes, okay, the car has stopped, so just hold on. So now we're kind of like, well, well, what's he doing? And so he opens the door again, he looks back out and he's like, okay, so it's a police car. <laughs> we're like, what kind of police car? Like campus police or real police? Like what are we talking about here? Like mall cop, real cop, like what is this? So we're sitting there kind of anxious and then he opens the door and he looks back and he goes, okay, nobody freak out, but he's coming. He's coming to the door. And as soon as he said, he's coming to the door, eight of us freaked out, and we just ran. Like, we literally just ran down the hall, busted out the front door, and ran back to our dorm. I don't think my feet ever hit the ground. We just ran down the hill, and the other three or four were just trapped in that room. And so we had no idea what happened to them. Like, we had no idea. It turns out that they all jumped up onto the shelving. It was the storage room. They all just hid in the shelving for, like, a long time. And so we got back to the dorm and we're all sitting in the, the, the room just like laughing and breathing hard and like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to graduate. My mom's going to kill me if I don't walk and uh, all that money and oh my goodness. So uh, like two hours later, those four people come back in the dorm and we're like, hey man, what happened? And they were like, man, what happened to you guys? We were laying on the shelves for like two hours and the cop had the flashlight like looking around. They never saw him, so he's a great cop. And... Uh, <laughs> So, <laughs> so I think, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind exactly here, but I think you get the picture. Like, it's all great until it's a liability, and then we run. Are you with me on that? Anybody into under, Undercover Boss, that show? I love that show where the bot, like the CEO of the company, just like goes to the stores in the mall and like, there's, a, there's always the scene where he or she has to go into the store. It's the CEO of Gap, and they put a mustache on him that looks really fake. And he goes to work in the store at the mall, and the first thing that he or she discovers is, like, how much the employees really don't even care about the company. Like, that's what they figure out. Like, oh, you don't really care about it like I care about it? You wouldn't give your life for this? You're not folding those Don't you care about the jeans? Like, it's this whole, like, awakening of, like, okay, not everybody cares like I care. Does that make sense? 
Maybe better than the chapel chair thing. I mean, that's the scene Jesus is painting here. That the hired hands, they don't own the situation because they don't own the sheep. They're only in it for the money. And it's not worth the risk for them because in their mind, the wolf wins every time. So let me break this down a little bit further for you. Jesus is setting up a comparison of two different levels of commitment to the sheep. One is that the shepherd would lay his life down for the sheep. We've already talked about that. And number two, the hired hands, they don't give a rip about the sheep. Period. To the hired hands, the sheep are simply a means to an end, which is money. It's a part-time gig. It's what I've been hired to do. And if, if watching the sheep becomes, for the hired hand, a personal liability, he cuts his losses and runs away, and he leaves the sheep to die. Cultural rea- reality in the day, but also a reality for us today. We understand how that works. And then Jesus reiterates in verse 15, and I, now making this personal, I lay my life down for the sheep. And a part of that statement is literal. It's foreshadowing. Jesus will, in fact, die on behalf of the world. Now, the listeners at that time, they don't pick up on that. They're not hearing that, per se. What they're hearing is a great illustration about a level of commitment. And since it's about shepherd and sheep, they're wise enough to know that this is spiritual, that this is about God and us. And God is very, very committed to us. I mean, that's really the teaching that's going on here. It's not a once-off reference just to his death on the cross, but it was and still is a reminder for them and for us of God's unfailing uh, commitment to us no matter what. That wherever we find ourselves in, in life, that God, unlike the hired hand, will never run away. That's the thing that Jesus is getting here, saying to us, don't trust a hired hand to do what only the good shepherd can do. The hired hands, they always run away. Always. They're only in it for the money. They don't really care about you. I mean, they might a little, as long as it's a benefit to them. But as soon as you become a liability, they're gone. They're gone. And you're left there alone. I don't know if you followed this a few years back, but the whole Tiger Woods unraveling was extraordinary. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, just the the story is incredible. And, you know, you've seen enough of these as you get older. You sort of figure out that something isn't right. Like the first story to hit the news was like, Tiger's truck hit a telephone pole. Like, what? That doesn't seem too right. And then, like, it starts to come out like there was a fight between him and his wife. And then you just start going, oh, man, here it comes. Here it comes. It's, it's going to unravel in front of us. And we kind of like that. I, I sometimes wonder if, you know, situations like Lindsay Lohan and whatnot, if that's half our fault. Because we want that on camera. We want to see people unravel. And Lance Armstrong is next. I mean, it's happening. It's been happening to him for a while. But he's next. 
And everybody sort of ends up in that Mark McGuire category, and you're like, who's Mark McGuire? That's my point exactly. We love to see this sort of thing happen. And Tiger Woods was an incredible story. He's just a few years younger than me, and so we followed him uh, since he was really a Stanford student, watching him play and excel and just rise to the top, really one of the best ever. And then his other life intersects at the wrong time in the wrong place, and then all this stuff starts coming out about who he really is and the troubles that not only was he having in his marriage, but the number of affairs was just extraordinary. Extraordinary. And then the fallout begins to happen. I mean, he's supported by all these companies and all these industries, and you start to wait for who drops, and then it just begins to happen. Accenture, gone. Gatorade, gone. General Motors, gone. AT&T, gone. Tournament appearances, gone. And you're watching this. It's happening. It's happening right in front of us. Now, all those companies and organizations that dropped him, they did not drop him over morality. There's no clause in any of those company handbooks about a man's obligation uh, morally to his wife. They don't care. That's not the point. The point is that Tiger had become a PR risk. And they might lose customers. I get that. That's business. That's some of the things you have to decide on. It's the world that we live in. You cut your losses to perhaps regain ground. And within that is this really strong and powerful reality of public opinion. You have to picture the boardrooms of these places saying, what, are, what will the country think of us if we stand beside this guy? What do we do? What will, they, will we lose people because we walk with this guy? If they associate us with him, like what happens to us when they make decisions? Did they do anything wrong as companies? No. Did they do the right thing? Perhaps. I mean, they certainly did the right thing for business. It's a decision they had to make, a decision based on what's best in the interest of the economy for that company. That's how it works. You can't fault them. Tiger was a liability and a PR nightmare that they didn't want to live through. And somewhere in the valley of his life, he starts to come out and speak. And in one of the interviews, he said these words, stripping away denial and rationalization, you start coming to the truth of who you really are, and that can be very ugly. Now that is a statement of someone who's at the bottom. And there's just nothing left to do except to look at the cameras and say, I'm just a loser. It just all went wrong. And if I could have been there for that interview, like, I really would have wanted nothing more than to hear about that process, particularly when all the damage was done and the dust had cleared, like, who was still standing there beside him? I'm sure it was less than before, because that's how it works. When we are a liability, people run, and they leave, and they abandon us. And what's worse is that if you are a Christ follower, that we sometimes mistake the hired hand 
for God. That we trust the wrong people with our souls. And that when we fail in life, morally, relationally, or whatever, a lot of those people around us, they leave us. They run away from us. We're too much of a risk for them at this point in their life. And we're kind of left standing there, abandoned, alone, empty, damaged, broken. And if we mistake the hired hand for God, which we do a lot, when we break, it's a really tough season for us. Whether you've been through a divorce or an addiction, infidelity, you've been fired, anything that pushes the brokenness of who you are into the public square and it announces to everyone in the world, hey, look, I'm not perfect. It's really, for some people, not worth the risk anymore to be around you. And that's what happens when we find ourselves thinking that all these people say they care about us, but they don't. Not like the Good Shepherd. I mean, they, there are a few. But most people are not like the Good Shepherd. And when we find ourselves at the bottom, it's a really critical time for us. I was reading a blog by a theologian and professor, uh, Peter Enns, and he, for some reason he was talking about that trust fall, you know, that thing where you fall into people's hands, that thing you do on team building retreats that doesn't really help your team at all. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, maybe I just say that as someone who's done that a million times and I'm still a terrible team member, but... Um, it's more like, if you don't catch me, I'm going to fire you. So catch me. Uh, but he, he said this. I, I think this is extraordinary. And it was all in the context of like belief in God. And then the difference between that and trusting God. Totally different. He says, there's a reason they do not call that activity the belief fall. They call it the trust fall. And there is a major chasm between saying something like, I believe in God, and on the other end of the chasm, I trust God in this very moment. Those are two different things. In the scriptures, belief really isn't, like, it's not elevated that much. It's almost like a given in the scriptures, like, really, you believe? Everybody believes. But what are you doing with that? Do you believe enough to trust it? in the worst of moments for yourself. Because usually what happens is when we break, when we fall apart, and the dust is cleared and no one's standing there, we feel like we're such a failure that God has left the scene as well. And I love what Joan Chatister said when she said, we are raw material for divine hope. This recognition that in whatever state we find ourselves in, particularly at the lowest point in our lives, we're just great for the molding at that point for God. He's still there. And we live in a world that often sees relationships uh, as economic ventures of what can be gained or lost. Think about just how you talk about friendships. I gain so much from our friendship. When you're not around, I just I lose something. I've invested so much into you. The return is so great. This is how we see things in terms of money, profit. And so it's hard to see a picture of God who doesn't see it that way. 
because the economy of God is very, very different. I challenge you to read the scriptures with this in mind. Be looking for God's love as an economic system that loves to lose. It's based on losing. It appears so that it desires to lose. All of the statements and passages about Jesus coming here is all based in the language on loss. He gave up heaven to come here. He gave up his life for you and for me. He lost everything for the sake of the world. The gospel seems, Jesus in particular, seems to like rejection. I mean, just read the gospel accounts. It's like, wow, Jesus is really comfortable with rejection. His ministry seemed to thrive on rumor. Didn't bother him. Very comfortable with scandal. Really comfortable. Unafraid to lose ground. It's extraordinary. It doesn't seem to care what you think. Like it just, it, it, the gospel just goes forward regardless of what we think about it. No concern with PR. And Jesus was called everything in the books. A drunk, a glutton, friend of sinners, all of it. Didn't care. Didn't care. And I hope what's sinking in is this encouragement that all of us need to hear, but let me just say it to you, that you, no matter the situation, are not a liability with God. Never. In fact, he will take the loss. That's what he came to do. There's a website out there, and I will admit that it's really funny, and it's called Jesus Needs New PR. It's funny in a way that if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Because, and I know some of you are already looking for it, but... uh, but it's one of those things where it's just like, it's really not about Jesus per se, but it's about us. It's like this, it's this site kind of making fun and poking at us, those of us who say we are followers of him, and like just how ridiculous sometimes we can be. And of course, there's the, the church signs and the pictures of the church signs and the things that churches say and, and uh, stickers and t-shirts and just all these things that really the culture looks at and says, gosh, it's just so ridiculous. And so here's this whole thing about like Jesus needs a whole new PR uh, shakedown. And I just sort of say, well, maybe, because even if we could clean him up and, and shine Jesus in such a way that he's presentable to our world and fit for culture, like he's cool, I just sort of contend that it wouldn't last that long. I mean, I'm being serious. Like, even if we could, if we could fix him up to where he's acceptable, it won't last long. And here's why. Because eventually grace will ruin his reputation. See, grace always gets in the way because grace ends up hanging around the wrong people every time. Grace ends up forgiving my enemies. That wasn't in the plan. That's terrible PR. But grace does that. Grace always loves those that I hate. Doesn't care doesn't play by the rules, doesn't care what I think, it doesn't care what you think. It goes on doing its thing, which is bringing 
renewal and hope to the broken and confusion to the proud. And when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the hired hand doesn't give a rip about you, so don't confuse me with the hired hand, because the good shepherd will die for you, and he did. And Jesus was setting up one of the greatest pictures of God that we could ever engage with, that he is seriously that committed to you and to me. That after all the dust has settled and all the collateral damage has been done, he's still standing there. I love the story in John 8 where the men throw the woman caught in adultery at the feet of Jesus. And there's all these people with stones in their hands and they quote scripture to him. I love when people use scripture for the wrong reasons. And they say, it says we should kill her. What do you say? They're trying to trap him. Because there's no man, by the way. They just found the woman caught in adultery. As far as I remember, that's a tandem thing. And there's no man. It's just the woman. This is a setup. It's dirty. It's a trick. And they throw her in front of him. And they say, what do you say? And he writes in the dirt. I think he's writing in the dirt so he doesn't kill him. He's just occupying himself. And then he stands up and he says that great line, like, if any of you is without sin, then you throw the first stone. And it's just like this. Wow, and everybody leaves. And the next line in the story is that there's no one there but Jesus and this person, this woman, who's probably not even looking at him. She's ashamed. She's, she's in a terrible state. And Jesus looks at her and essentially says, where has everybody gone? It's just you and me. Because that's what the good shepherd does. It clears the room of all these would-be friends and lovers and it shows who's really with you and that he is seriously that committed to us that when we become a liability to the world around us he doesn't run away instead he takes the hit isn't that a beautiful illustration I am the good shepherd shepherds are terrible so Jesus is a good one and don't confuse me the hired hand. We couldn't do today without reading Psalm 23, but the way I would like to do this today is uh, I would like for you to read it with me. We've put it on the screen for you uh, so that we're all reading off the same page. And um, we'll read this as a community together, and then uh, we will move into a time of communion and offering, and I'll set that up uh, after we do this, and I'll pray. So let's read this together. Uh, as we close, uh, David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my oil, head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for that truth. That whatever life throws at us, wherever we find ourselves, um, when we're broken, when we're 
in need of much grace and repair, that you are there, that you have never left. And God, I assume that in this room there are people who are standing alone and feeling abandoned. And that certainly translates into a fear that you have done the same. And I just pray that in some way today um, you've, you've corrected that false view of who you are. And that God, whatever we're dealing with, that, um, that you let us know in the next few moments that you're right with us. And that you're saying to us, where has everybody gone? As if to say, I'm the one that cares the most. And we thank you that you care the most. And that somehow you can love all of us the most. And that's, a, that's just amazing. And so God, as we move to these tables and, and participate in this old tradition of eating the bread and drinking the juice, that you use this time to encourage us and to fill this room with a spirit of peace and understanding. And God, on the flip side, help us to be people who are committed to one another, through thick and thin, through brokenness and perfection. God, that we're just always there for our neighbors, for our, those we walk with in the faith. God, those who work for us, those who rely on us. God, that we're just always there. Help us to emulate what it means to follow the Good Shepherd by just giving us opportunities to somehow mirror that in our friendships. Though impossible uh, to do it all the time, we, we pray for a glimpse of what it must be like for you to be that way for us. God, we love you and we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Take your time uh, at your own pace. Make your way to one of the four tables around the room uh, and then take the communion there. You can take it back to your seat. That is fine. Uh, the offering boxes are also on the table. So if you've come prepared to give, then you can do that at this time.